morning, everybody. You can be seated. My name is Bill. I'm one of the elders here at Church Next Door. Scott, our regular pastor, is off with his family, enjoying some, uh, hopefully, peace and quiet out in Ohio. Um, so you get to hear from me a little bit today. Let's start with some prayer, shall we? Bow your heads. Lord, we thank you for this morning, this time that we get to gather together. Um, thank you for this place where we get to meet uh, indoors with some air conditioning um, during the nice hot summer days. We ask that you open your word to us, uh, let it uh, shine a light into our lives, and guide us as we go throughout our week. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we are in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, the second half of 1 Peter, starting in verse 13. So we're just going to work our way through uh, this section. So starting in verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that is a really key point there is that being sober-minded, right? Um, girding up the loins of your mind, uh, that we are engaging our mind fully in our understanding uh, of our salvation and for the assurance of our salvation. If we base it solely on our feelings, right, that assurance can get a little wavy, just like our feelings tend to get a little wavy. And I tend to do that at some times, right? When I feel really close to God, I know I'm going to be saved. But when I feel a little far from God, I worry, oh, am, am I saved? Right? But that's why we got to turn to our mind and include our mind in that conversation. Right? It's because our salvation is not dependent on us. It's wholly and completely dependent upon the grace of God through Jesus Christ. This is why we must engage our minds. Right? As Jesus said in Mark 12, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Our feelings certainly have a role to play. We engage our heart and our soul when we worship, right? But it's our minds that keeps those feelings in check. So when I begin to question my status, right, I turn to Scripture and remind myself that there's nothing I can do to separate myself from the love of Christ. There's nothing I can do to lose my salvation because it's completely dependent on God. He died for my sins, past, present, and future on the cross. And he rose again to bring us all new life. We will get to fully enjoy this new life at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes again to bring us into eternity with him. Take a look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's written in the book of Leviticus. Um, Leviticus is all about the rules set down for the Israelites uh, that God has established for them, uh, so that they will be set apart for God, a nation holy to the Lord, right? so that the whole world can look at Israel and say, oh, that's, that's the kind of people that God wants, that's Right, going to give us a picture of who God is looking at this group of people. Right? 
In Leviticus chapter 20, God says that he separated Israel so that they are fully his. And in chapter 21, he goes on to point out that he is the one who's going to be sanctifying Israel. Five times the Lord commands Israel to be holy, for I am holy. Three times in the context of eating clean food, and twice in the context of obeying your parents, which is fitting because Paul tells us to be obedient children, right? Obedient to our Heavenly Father. In Psalm 127, we're told that children are a blessing. As a new dad, I did not always see this, especially the first couple months while Jovi did not sleep through the night. Um, I was not aware that children were a blessing. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. Um, however, when she started sleeping through the night, I started to see it. Um, when she says, Dada, I get thrilled by that. Um, when I ask her to come here and give me a hug, and she does, I am excited. Um, it is a blessing. And I have to remind myself of those times, right, when she's cranky and trying to slap me in the face, um, or when she stares at me and puts her hand in the trash can, right, <laughs> knowing that she shouldn't, and then throws a fit, full-on tantrum when I take her hand out. So I remind myself of those, those good times. But yeah, we are a blessing to our Heavenly Father when we are obedient to Him. Okay? And in this passage, we see the pattern repeated in Scripture for how we are to become obedient. It's not enough to avoid following the former passions. Right? We have to turn ourselves to something good. So if I'm staring at the donuts and I've already had one, and I know if I have another, I'm going to start to feel sick, but I just keep staring at them, I'm going to end up grabbing another one and taking another bite. But, all right, if I leave the room, turn my back, turn my attention onto something better, right, I'm not going to be thinking about the donuts anymore, and I can move on and be fine with just my one donut. All right? In the same way, we've got to turn our minds from the bad habit to something good. In Ephesians 4.28, it says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Right? We avoid being trapped by the passions of our flesh by pursuing holiness. We replace wrong action with righteous action, which we can only do through the power of the Holy Spirit given to us through prayer. Continuing on, verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So we are judged by our deeds. Thankfully, as Christians, our sinful deeds have been washed away by the blood of Christ, leaving only the good works behind. For unbelievers, though, sinful deeds place a person in the path of God's wrath, which leads to hell. That is a pretty fearful thing, and worth at least considering the offer of salvation. But Peter here is talking to Christians, commanding them to conduct themselves with fear in the time of our exile. And a reminder that we are exiles, as Scott pointed out last week, because we now belong to a heavenly kingdom, right? Yeah, we're stuck here on earth, right? But in my experience, when I hear the phrase fear of the Lord, most of the time I hear it explained as, right, uh, 
respect, a holy respect for God. And uh, while I think that is true, I think if it were just respect, right, they probably wouldn't use the word fear of the Lord. One commentary I read described the fear of the Lord as somewhere between terror and reverential awe, which I kind of like. But I haven't had very many experiences of terror in my life. The closest I've really come um, was when I was younger and got myself into dangerous situations. Uh, I was jumping off a six-foot wall onto our trampoline in the backyard, which was great fun, until my mom came out and saw what we were doing. Uh, um, and to- she told me to get down. So at the moment, I'm standing on right the six-foot wall, and I know if I jump, that's probably not going to look very good, you know, because that's what I just got in trouble for. So I was going to try and sit down and scoot off, um, but the wall is about four inches thick, and I'm trying to sit down and scoot off of that wall. Um, so naturally, I fall backwards off the wall, um, uh, and the last thing I remember about halfway down and just sheer tear and I black out. Um, landed on some rocks and that was great fun. But I'm here now, so it all works out okay. Uh, but, but that's just tear, that's not mixed with awe, right? We need tear and awe and that kind of combination is kind of what I, where I see that fear of the Lord idea. So, when I think of that, the first thing that came to mind for me was a volcanic eruption. All right, the sheer power of such an explosion can be terrifying, yet the magnitude of the experience will leave us in awe. The loudest sound ever recorded in history was the eruption of Krakatoa in 1883. It was so loud that on a ship 40 miles off the coast of the island where it exploded, half the sailors had their eardrums burst. Um, Yeah, and it was clearly heard 3,000 miles away. It's like something happening in New York and people in San Francisco being like, what's that noise, right? So loud that they notice that noise that they write it down, right, and record it in history. Um, So the shockwave was so intense, it was measured by atmospheric pressure changes for the next five days as the shockwave traveled around the Earth four times. Yeah. Um, And, of course, the explosion ripped the island in half. Now, there's no video recording of that kind of eruption because they didn't have recorders then, and if you were close enough to record it at that time, you'd be wiped out. Um, So we have a a video of a much smaller explosion that we're going to take a look at. Now, as you're watching the video, what I want you to focus on is the clouds. <laughs> it's a big eruption, right? You can see the, the clouds kind of move away really quickly as that shock wave hits it. Now this ship is about three miles off the coast of that eruption. And they were just fine from that shock wave. Yeah. Now imagine being on the island when something like that happened. And we begin to get an idea of why God said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Or why everyone bows when they see just an angel. And the first thing out of the angel's mouth has to be, do not be afraid. 
because everyone is. <laughs> right? Or at the, why at the Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are all described as terrified of what's going on. They see Jesus in his full glory. They hear the voice of God coming from the clouds. They are terrified. And yet, let's take a look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So when we get a glimpse of the majesty of God and juxtapose it with his mercy, right, we're, that we were bought with the blood of Jesus, we can begin to understand just how loved we are and hold fast to this knowledge as the assurance of our salvation. Now, since we've been saved by the blood of Christ, we should fully understand what that means. Right? Who Jesus is. Before we look at what the Bible says, let's look at some survey results of what Americans believe about Jesus. Okay? So depending on the survey you look at, 43 to 52% believe that Jesus sinned like everyone else. Like the announcer guy we saw last week that Scott talked about. Yet 62% say they have made a personal commitment to Jesus. Which also means, if you look at those numbers, at least some people who confess that they are Christians also believe that Jesus sinned. Of those that made that personal commitment, 60% believe that they will get to go to heaven because they've confessed their sins and accepted Christ. If only it were 100%. The rest think that they're going to make it to heaven because they've been trying to follow the Ten Commandments, or they're basically a good person, or that God doesn't want to send anybody to hell, so of course he's going to send everyone to heaven. 2%, though, believe that they're not going to heaven. Um, and 15%, that's three out of 20, just have no idea. So that's, that's a picture of where we're at right now in America today. What does the Bible say, though? The Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God, one person of the Trinity. He is the God-man, fully God, fully man, and he lived a perfect, sinless life. Let's take a look at some verses, shall we? So we're going to go first to Colossians. Right. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. So in this, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Next we're going to take a look at Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, this is one of the verses, again, Scott mentioned last week, but important to 
take a look at it again. Starting in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And again, we're going to take a next look in John chapter 14. So the Gospel of John chapter 14, starting in verse 8. So Philip is talking to Jesus. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still not, do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves." This is who Jesus is. Right? This is who we put our faith in for our salvation. And how do we go to heaven? Well, Jesus explains that in chapter 6 of John. So we go back just a few more chapters. John chapter 6, starting in verse 28. I'm going to read quite a few verses here. So chapter 6, verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Cool. Let's finish our First uh, Peter chapter one section. So we're back now in verse twenty. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So our faith is in Christ and in God. It's not a contradiction, but a reaffirmation that Jesus Christ is God. 
That is how it is possible for Christ to be foreknown before creation. Right? When we celebrate Christmas, we're not celebrating Christ's birth in the same sense that I celebrate Jovi's birth. Right? Before Jovi was conceived, she didn't exist. Um, God knew she would exist. But until she was conceived, right, when she was, then she existed. Jesus right, existed before time. Before time. Sure. Um, he would occasionally appear in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. Right? Then as, at Christmas, Christ was made manifest. Right? Basically, now we can see him. Now he looks like a person. Right? Um, so he went from existing fully within the Trinity to being physically present in the body of that baby boy. He does this for our sakes, that we might recognize our broken relationship with God because our sins, because of our sins, and accept his offer of salvation through his death and resurrection. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So to summarize, the Holy Spirit renews our minds, which we use to understand Scripture. Scripture tells us about God, who is so holy that we tremble in awe. He is our judge and our savior through Christ Jesus, who is God, lived a perfect human life, died on a cross, and rose from the dead. We join him in good works, which he prepared for us, and he is the one who sanctifies us, giving us the ability to live more like him. Our bodies will eventually wear out, but by his word, which remains forever, we put on the imperishable to live with him for eternity. To summarize that, Live a full life in Jesus and bring others along for the ride. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the gift of your word, that it will never perish, and that we can fully place our trust in you, in your word, uh, that we can have assurance of our salvation because of the work that you've done for us on the cross. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.